This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is made possible by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia believes in honoring all life as sacred, working with many projects towards a shared vision for the future, rooted in an interconnected approach to ecology, culture, and spirituality. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many transformative projects to life and for helping us to bring our show to you every week. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are sharing with you a special edition episode from our time at Lightning in a Bottle. We started to challenge ourselves to think, how can we not only tell the stories from the communities that we represent, that we're accountable to, but also facilitate in the cross-pollination of the stories that often go missing or mangled in mainstream media, that we can say in our own first-hand truth, bear witness to that, and have that be part of what dispels the myths that are created to keep us divided. Music festivals have long since been a site of energetic convergence between music, cultural transformation, art, celebration of life, and at times even political resistance. Following Woodstock in the 1960s, we have since witnessed a surge of transformational festivals across the country and around the world. From Burning Man to Lightning in a Bottle, the phenomenon of festival culture seems to have taken hold of our generation's imagination in a new way. As these all-immersive experiences that allow many to step into an alternative realities and explore new paradigms of community and being in relationship with one another. Given the festivals have become such important sociocultural artifacts of our time, it's incumbent upon us, participants and media makers alike, to engage and wrestle with the complexities of these gatherings. Does their transformative potential and creative energy get lost to escapism, or create an opening for real change and chart a revolutionary path beyond the festival space? Can we justify the immense resource use and environmental impact of inviting tens of thousands of people and establishing entire power grids in remote, sometimes fragile, desert ecosystems. Though many transformative festivals are guided by principles of radical inclusion and participation, how does this ethos take space in practice and in addressing barriers of access? This year, I wanted For the Wild to attend the Compass at Lightning in a Bottle, not only to explore these questions, but also to reconnect and support our incredible community of friends, allies, and collaborators in this work. From workshop conversations to moments of pure joy and celebration, these shared experiences and intimate connections help remind us of our deeper collective purpose and ground for the wild in the greater web of resistance and resurgence. So to kick off our lightning in a bottle or LIB episode and dig into some of these questions, we have the incredible opportunity to hear from Isis Indria and Eve Bradford, the co-directors of The Compass, the educational heart of lightning in a bottle. Well, welcome, dear friends. I am so happy to have you today. Thank you, Ayana. So happy to be here. 
Thank you. An honor to be here in the For the Wild podcast. Yay. So to jump right in, I want to begin by speaking to the separation that we're facing in these times. And under our current dominant capitalist culture, I think so many of us are experiencing a felt sense of alienation and isolation from our planetary kin, a toxic cultural dissolution that strokes the flames of political division, social marginalization, and violent extremism. In so many ways, we have lost the ancient human tradition of gathering, making music, dancing, celebrating, and serving one another. So Eve and Isis, to jump in today, I would love to hear more about how your work with living village culture and the compass is breathing life back into village culture, as well as our relationships with each other, the planet, and the sacred. How are you as leaders at the forefront of this movement and architects of cultural initiation, honoring the old and nurturing emergence of the new within the gatherings and experiences you create? Well, you know, first off, In relation to festival culture, we've often talked a lot about how we imagine that this is sort of the modern day desire to experience some sense of village life again. And we think that that's why festival culture has grown so rapidly, so quickly, because we don't really have village experiences for those of us that weren't raised in indigenous communities. Um, I'm my, I was born in Mesa, Arizona, raised on the island of Guam. I'm a Chamorro woman. My culture is Chamorro. Guahan is our island. Um, I'm also a quarter German and, uh, in, I was raised in villages, you know, I was, I was raised with grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles and cousins and nieces and raised in a household full of people all the time. And, you know, I remember growing up every village once a month would provide a full fiesta of food for all the other villages to come. And then the next village would do the same for all the other, for all of us to come to. It was like this shared feasting, feeding dynamic that happened on the island. And simultaneously, this continued journey of colonization, you know, we're still being colonized to this, to this day, you know, we're a U.S. territory. And um, moving from Guam to America, you know, was incredibly traumatic because I just didn't really have a village experience anywhere. And I didn't know how to find it. And I really think think that's what led me to festival culture. And so we kind of imagine that that's why this is happening. And also at this time where as the the systems that we've been programmed to function and are breaking down and thus our own programs needing to break down and transform too, these festival environments are really calling forth a consciousness shift. Now, sometimes that can, it can lead to escapism because of the psychedelic movement. Sometimes it can be a, an avenue to escape from the current paradigm and reality that we're functioning in or programmed to function in. And also it's in a way, sometimes a call for like personal initiation, transformation and collective initiation, transformation. Also to this time where there's a, a seek, a search to not only connect with each other and connect with the sacred in some form, especially for those that are spiritual orphans that weren't raised in any traditions or cultures that honor the sacred. We often talk a lot about how we feel like this is sort of like the modern day desire, call, and reach for some sort of connection to each other, to to village life experiences, community, and thus the sacred. Um, oftentimes, you know, I, Michael Pollan said this thing at uh, Bioneers last year, you know, the, in relation to the psychedelic movement, that the further we go into consciousness, we find our way to the sacred. 
and we're finding this experience, these experiences are happening for a lot of people. They go, they um, journey with music and art and education and psychedelics, and they have these major self-initiations and collective initiations. And we found over the years that there hasn't been in the festival culture really until the last maybe like six or seven years, a home where we actually take the time to be with the elements of life, like the fire, the water, the air, the earth, um, multi-generational uh, wisdom keeper leadership and uh, youth voices. There hasn't, that's, that's a new part of festival culture that's been really growing and emerging in the last five to seven years. And we found that the more that we tend to and care for um, holding a sacred container around the fire, a sacred container with the water, with, you know, indigenous youth voices and wisdom keeper elders all there at the same time sharing around the fire, there is an awakening that occurs in the hearts and minds of the people. So I'm going to stop there. And Eve, you want to hop in and continue forward? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Isis mentioned, you know, this this vision that we had together of having been inside of festival culture for quite some time since we were pretty young and watching it ebb and flow and change and grow. And both of us, Isis and I have always kind of been like the secret nerds at the party of always being the ones kind of interested in pushing the content. Because I think even before we were consciously aware of it, we felt the potential of this space for being a place where culture was happening. Actually, one of the very first like taglines for our company, Living Village Culture, was culture as a verb. And that really grew out of our participation in festival culture and seeing how something was happening around us. It was being made. It wasn't just being talked about. And so when you have access to those spaces where you feel culture being made around you, that is also a space where you have an opportunity to get intentional about shaping culture as well. And so that began, I think, more subconsciously where our own desire for sacred, you know, we started doing opening and closing ceremonies when we didn't really, you know, when that wasn't really ever happening and beginning to present workshops around the intersection of traditional earth-based wisdom cultures and contemporary festival culture. And, you know, this grew and evolved over time. And we really became aware of this notion that Isis spoke about of this latent desire for village life. And it felt like a really worthy endeavor to take that from being more implicit to, to make it more explicit and actually say, this is what we're doing. This is what you're longing for, whether you realize it or not. So if this is something that your soul is longing for, how can we utilize this context of festival culture to begin to actually create and cultivate the awareness, the skill sets, the connections, the relationships, the web of potentials that are gonna allow that to actually move from festival culture out into our lives beyond festival culture. And that's kind of been our guiding purpose with Living Village Culture from the start is to really take what feels to us like the most fertile, 
potential, activist cultural potential of what we see in festival culture and bring that forward. It's that principle of like, you know, we can look at festival culture and see everything that is really questionable about it. And we can see everything that's really amazing about it. And so our approach has always been to try to feed and nurture and cultivate what we see as the positive potential of it rather than standing back and just critiquing what's negative about it because people are there they're waiting to be guided into more meaningful more connected more sustainable more participatory lives and and so we just that's what we want and so we want to get together and all the people that have inspired us on our past create a platform for all the people who have ways have really good information who don't necessarily have access to that audience that is very hooked into social media, very hooked into contemporary culture, maybe not paying attention to something like Pioneers, maybe have never found For the Wild podcast on their own. So it's about building bridges between the audience who kind of wants that information, whether they realize it or not, and the people whose lives are dedicated to that work, but don't necessarily have access to that audience. Mm. Going off, particularly this tension between the outside world and the all immersive co-constructed festival world, I want to ask how you are making decisions around who and what you bring into the compass. I was reading an interview with Elliot Rasnick, the founder of Beloved Festival on the Oregon coast, who, how he kind of responded to a similar question. He said, quote, if we don't take the time to be honest about what's happening in the world and take the time to grieve, then there is something fundamentally shallow about any joy that we can experience, end quote. And so while reading this quote, and of course, so many of my own thoughts over the years, it really occurred to me that... And, and honestly, more and more, I feel this, that the joy and grief, the lightness and the darkness, they all go hand in hand, constructing profound experiences that connect people not only to deep pleasure and love and celebration of being human, but also the very real urgent crisis unfolding before us. So I'd like to ask you to, how do you balance these two twin elements in your programming? Yeah, God, I so appreciate that. And appreciate you bringing in Elliot too, because he's someone who's really made an effort to be evolving festival culture and be receptive to critique and, you know, really be in the dialogue about how festival culture itself can learn and grow and evolve. Um, so it's nice to hear his name in the mix. And our, our process of curation is, it's so interesting. We reflect on it sometimes. It's so organic it is methodical if you happen to be like a chaos magician, but it's so much about deep listening. I mean, that is the core of our curatorial process. And just every year, you know, we, we never really stop curating for the compass. It's happening all the time because we're always just paying attention to all the ways that the world is speaking to us about what's needed and what's wanted and what will actually penetrate, you know, in a way that offers hope. And it's so true that there needs to be a balance of fearless engagement with the truth of the intensity and the challenge of the times that we're living in and the possibility of joy and celebration and presence 
in this moment of aliveness and sensuality and direct engagement with the beauty of the world. That is what makes the crisis a tragedy because if we don't acknowledge that beauty, then we don't actually connect to what's tragic. And so I'm currently engaged in a deep study of Taoist philosophy and, and, you know, opposites give rise to each other. Like that's part of the natural law of the universe. And so what we have learned over time is that by going deeply into the challenge and being fearless about engaging with the real crux of the matter, you know, bringing Dr. Vandana Shiva, bringing Project Drawdown, bringing, you know, incredible activists who are directly engaged with some of the stuff that's really hard to look at and not resisting that and opening ourselves to it. There's a relief that arises from knowing that you're not having a good time at the expense of being in denial of the reality of the situation. Because we know somewhere in us that if we're celebrating from a place of denial and escapism, then the celebration is hollow and superficial and it's not actually feeding our souls. It's just escapism. And so if we can engage fearlessly with, with, and vulnerably and just honestly with the conundrum of our times, then it's almost like from that naturally arises this authentic celebration of life and what it is to have been given this gift of life that becomes so much more precious and valuable when we are really aware of all the things that threaten it and all the things that we want to directly engage with in order to be protectors of it and to stand for that beauty. But if we're not also taking time to appreciate it and to be in the sensual pleasure of having a body and being in the world, then what are we fighting for? Then why are we engaging? And so they really naturally feed each other, which is why like, for example, climbing poetry is such a powerful example of both of those things at once, of the direct engagement with the challenge that gives rise to the celebration of being alive, which gives us the resource to re-engage with the challenge. And it's this cycle that we all get to be in together that gets so much more deep and so much more authentic when we actually fully, completely engage in both sides of the spectrum. My goodness, I just want to thank you both so much for being so intimate and personal and really sharing the depth of or some of the depths of your work. And we're going to be playing some of the recordings we were able to get while we were at LIB. And I'm just so excited for our listeners to hear some of the snippets from this year's LIB festival. And, you know, of course, all coming from the compass. And just wanting to let everybody know you'll be hearing excerpts from Desiree Harp and Nydia Alicia on indigenous women's spiritual rights and responsibilities, a visionary performance uh, with activists Alicia and Naima of Climbing Poetry, the incredible Vandana Shiva on earth democracy and Paul Stamets on magic and medicinal mushrooms, and just so much juiciness coming your way. We want to preface this conversation with the sentiments shared by Dita Mingus during Desiree Harp and Nidia Alicia's presentation, Indigenous Women, Spiritual Rights, and Responsibilities. Dee not only acknowledges the land and ancestral territory that LIB takes place on, but also shares the ways it has been altered and changed due to past and present colonial power. 
In our culture, when we like something, we give a big O. Can I get a big O? O. Thank you so much. So a part of our protocol that we have learned from our elders is whenever we are in a space, we always honor the indigenous people whose ancestral territory that we are in. And so we just wanted to give these elders a chance to talk about what's happening with the waters right here in this territory. My name is uh, Dee Dominguez. I'm Katanamak and Yaolamni Yogits. And I wanted to let everyone know that where we are standing today, this is the land of the Tulamni Yokets, the people of the, of the lake. And where we are standing, we're actually underwater. And this was actually uh, two lakes, one right here and another one, Kern Lake, just east of us. And the rest is marsh. All the way along these little mountains, up to Tulare Lake, going north to San Francisco Bay. When these waters are all here as they should be, we could take a boat from here to San Francisco Bay. Where is the water? This lake that is here is naturally fed fresh water from the Kern River that comes from the mountains from the east. The water doesn't go here to the lake. This water in this lake right here is now man-made. Comes from the water from the California aqueduct, the waters that come from the north. And these two lakes that were here in all this marsh, we had many species of fish, turtles, tulies, and many other plants. The turtles are gone. The native fish are gone. There are some tulies now in this water and man-made lake. When all these waters were in place, new people came to this land around the 1880s. One man looked at all the water. Wow, it's so beautiful. Look at all the water and the tulies. If I could take all this water away, the soil underneath will be so fertile for agriculture. So the water from the Kern River that was the freshwater that fed these large lakes was stopped and it was channeled north and all of the other creeks that came from the mountains, those waters no, pretty much do not exist anymore. And in order to prevent the water from the Kern River to come down there, because it, that water is very strong, they, he built, he brought this modern the equipment of that day, they were bulldozers, and built these big berms to divide the waters from the lake. The water was so strong with the waves it would knock down the berms, so they went up in these mountains and brought rock and built berms from rock, and the waters then could not beat those down. So this is referred to as an engineering marvel. I spoke to someone the other day when we talked about this, and the person says, but Dee, this is an engineering marvel. I couldn't even respond. The words behind my head said, an engineering marvel? You killed two lakes. We killed all the marshes. Tulare Lake is no longer there. That lake was more than two or three times bigger than the lakes that were here. So we have to ask ourselves, we did this. What are we doing to our water that we need to drink? Not only the fish, healthy fish and plants, but we need clean water for ourselves and for them 
and we're taking the waters away. But here, these people that lived here in these hillsides were the Tulamni, the Buena Vista Lake Yokuts people. Yokuts means people. The whole San Joaquin, San Joaquin Valley here, all the way to beyond Sacramento, are filled with people, Yokuts. But you say, well, I'm Yokuts. They say, well, where are you from? Which Yokuts are you? Well, I'm Tulamni from this lake. Or you say, I'm Yaolamni, you're from a little bit further over there. Yaolamni means white wolf people, the white wolves, because we called ourselves white wolves because of the white wolves that were here. White wolves are no longer here anymore either. The people were still here though. We were hanging in there. So, as we as people must remember to try to do what we can to listen to what, when we come up with an engineering marvel, think about it for reals. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. And thank you all for being here. We've had so many beautiful prayers and beautiful people that have come here. The spirits of the people are still here. People don't live here no more, but the spirits are here and we live elsewhere. And I have heard so many beautiful songs and prayers last night and all day and today, and the people are listening. And it's hopeful. And from the heart, we thank you very much. And I cannot say thank you enough for all the good spirits that you have brought here. Thank you. I want to begin by sharing some of the many conversations at LIB that encourage us to ground down in the truth of the present. We must require ourselves and one another to be attuned to the struggles before us, the violence wrought on earth, the oppression of our human communities, and of course, our interconnected liberation. You'll be hearing from my own talk, Wild Revolution, as well as from Desiree Harp and Nidia Alicia, who speak so fiercely about the intertwining of body and land. And what I hear a lot from the forest and from plants and mosses and mushrooms um, is help, do something, devote your life to us, look at us, acknowledge us, see us, be with us as we are being slaughtered. Do not look away. Stop sitting in denial. Stop pretending like we are not being raped in front of your very eyes so that you can continue living your consumer lifestyle. Okay, okay, okay. And it's also a lot of love. I hear a lot of love from the forest of belonging, of deeper meanings, of a connection beyond just my own little life. And the despair and the grief and the sadness that we have literally touched every inch of this planet and poisoned and extracted and that I'm a part of this inheritance. It was so much for me to take in. But then something happened, something happened where this voice said, there's nowhere to run. So stand where you love and fight like hell. And the relief in that, just knowing that I don't have to keep running from the big bad guy or the big bad toxic spill or the oil spill, it's everywhere and we need to just roll our sleeves up and get ourselves in the soil. We just need to get involved. There's not no next land or a next project. We're in it. Something that's really been coming to me lately is how do we slow down? How do we have pleasure? How do we have joy in these end times? And we are in end times. It may sound kind of dramatic to say that, 
But it's not dramatic to the 76 orcas in the Salish Sea that if they lose five more orcas, they're completely going extinct. Hell yeah. yeah, it's real. Knowing where we're headed with climate change to an extent, knowing how bad things are, why are we not willing? Or maybe the question is, what would it take for us to be willing to be a part of this wild revolution? To give all of ourselves what are we waiting for and what are we trying to live for on the other end when there's nothing left? So I just wanted to take a moment to honor where we stand. Something that our sister Sheridan, um, who's not here with us right now, but she's also a part of this prayer journey with us, something she always says is, water is not a what. Water is a who. Who are your waters? And so when we can really begin to understand that we are connected to these waters. If you are on this land right now, you have a connection to these waters right here. And uh, it's because we're made of water. And our sister Havani, something else that she always says that's so beautiful she says that, um, you know, the waters inside of us, they're longing to connect with, with the waters, the oceans and the lakes and the rivers, right? And so it's important for us to release whatever it is that we need to release in order for us to complete this journey that we call life. And so the biggest lesson that I've learned on this Run for Salmon prayer journey is that we are the salmon. We are reflections of the salmon. We embody those salmon. As we are going upstream, we have to be willing to transform in the same way that those salmon are willing to transform through the delta as they shift from salt water into fresh water. And so this prayer journey, if you join us, you're really in for a journey. And I just wanted to um, name that. Protecting Mother Earth is not just the responsibility of indigenous peoples. Wherever it is that we sleep, that we live, that we call home, we have a responsibility to know what is happening with those waters, to know what is happening with that land, and to know what has happened to the original caretakers of that land. We have that responsibility, why? Because those waters also run through our bodies. And we, we are also those rivers, we are also that land. And so it is our sacred responsibility to tend for the waters, to be in service, to listen to the earth, and to come with humble hearts. Speak into existence what Nidia just stated. Um, you know, something else that we're dealing with is um, the murdering of our indigenous woman. And so something that we've noticed is that the same way that we treat the woman is the same way that we treat the earth. So when we don't have that reciprocal relationship with the earth, when we just are paying attention to what we can extract from the earth, that's the same way that we're treating our woman. We're treating our woman in this way that we are tossing them around like objects. And uh, we are asking ourselves, what can we get from them, rather than asking ourselves, what can we give back to our woman? And uh, also something else that's very important is this idea of consent. With Mother Earth, we always ask for permission. We understand that it is important for us to to pray to Mother Earth and 
to really listen to what her needs are. And so it's important for us to listen to what our woman's needs are. It's important for us to ask for consent and not to assume that we know what she needs. You know, I hope that, that your hearts are soft enough to, to feel the pain of our earth and strong enough to keep moving and keep pumping through what Mother Earth is asking us to do in this time in defense of her. Maybe we can all close our eyes for, for one moment and take a moment to just be in our bodies. <sighs> And to be with the waters that, that we are carrying in our bodies. To be with the waters that we hold in our DNA ancestrally. All the rivers that make us who we are. All the rivers that fed our ancestors. And the rivers that nourish us today. And say a prayer for these waters. That we may remember their sacredness. That we may remember our sacredness and that we may walk in beauty and walk in peace in these crucial times. And we want to offer a beautiful song by one of our sisters, Nicole, who's another Run for Salmon organizer. Me and Nadia were actually singing this song backstage before we came out here, so it's going full circle. We're sending our prayers with the water for the healing of this land. We're sending our prayers with the water on a journey through rocks, waterfalls, and sand. We're sending our prayers with the water and this is what we send. May balance be restored and the salmon come home once again. Thank you so much. Oh. Can we get a big oh? We're about to play you some snippets from Climbing Poetry's life-giving performance. Creativity is the antidote to destruction, artistic tools for urgent times. Alixa Garcia and Naima Peniman deep dive into the importance of creativity, how we have the power to create and bring forth direct means to dismantle the powers of oppressors. These boundary breakers exemplify how vital performance, storytelling, and testimony is to movement building and liberation. What's up, y'all? My name is Alixa. He's family. My name is Naima. Our powers combined. We are climbing poetry. And I feel so blessed that we've been collaborating now for 16 years. Really, since the jump, dedicating our, our, our creativity as the antidote to destruction recognizing that what we can all create is literally the antidote to the violence that's dismembering our communities on so many levels, past, present, and hopefully not so far into the future if we can interrupt that.
We have a motto that art is our weapon, our medicine, our voice, and our vision. And that's just what we're going to practice into today. It's us that's going to shift this. We got to shift the culture. The only way to shift the culture is to get into the heart. And if you get into the heart, what's the best way than art, right? It's the straight arrow into it. So we're going to kick a piece for y'all right now. And then, and then we're going to get y'all moving and talking back to us, okay? I woke up. This morning, and my soul crawled up my skin and whispered in my ear. The revolution starts within, but without justice in this world, my poetry seems paper thin. Because somewhere in the world, a girl is counting stars and grains of rice and praying hard to save her life and pain and strife are the only cards she had to play with. And somewhere in Haiti, a mother's counting her dead children. And somewhere in New England, another's counting multi-millions. And somewhere in Chicago, a broken soul grows old in prison. And somewhere in Colombia, the land's too poisonous to live in and people live there and somewhere in the world landmines and pipelines crack pipes and high rises circumvent the land like lines designing palms of hands printing futures we will never understand until our ancestors become our children and right now the amount of bling the U.S. spends on Hollywood, pet food, cosmetics, and bombs would be enough to make fair trade, cough up reparations, and feed away starvation. Right now, on the G train, an indigenous woman is force feeding her newborn formula because the nation's breast was drained by Texaco and there was nowhere left to go. But underground railroads into sweatshops in this land of opportunity. Opportunity? Nah, because right now when West Philly, a born and raised stranger, is misplacing his pain in bullet holes and our saviors are growing old in the silent regions of our consciousness and this poem is not supposed to be depressing. Because somewhere in the world, a newborn is taking her first breath in. Somewhere someone is caressing the face of their first love and someone is dancing despite the hunger. And sometimes I dream in colors our eyes haven't even learned to see yet. I dream is peeled off every banner and bumper sticker and is swallowed like hard candy and we can all feel it deep within us. I dream justice is pulled down from tree limbs and freedoms untangled from and we all trust each other. enough to help each other enough to love each other in colors we couldn't even dream up. And we need dreams now. We rise and we let go and turn our dreams into proof. Because our liberation lives beneath our imagination's roof. But vision without execution is just a hallucination. And I grew tired of pretending freedom was around the corner when I never gave her my address or invited her over only longs for her company without dismantling my borders. 
Our words are the water, reshaping rock. Our actions are sledgehammers to apartheid blocks. Our dreams are the keys to prison guards' locks. Our consciousness, a collection of, of awakening, awakening thoughts that decided one day to release all the fear we were taught and give in to love, unfiltered son to the dawn, unconditional mother to son, unexpected, the enemy who put down his gun against the command that hailed from above a peace prayer of thousands of drums. The power of the people is the power of us. This year at LIB, many were exploring how we reclaim sovereignty and humanity in the throes of colonialism. What are the tools and practices we can cultivate amidst this time of creation and destruction? We pick back up with climbing poetry, and then you'll hear from Dr. Vandana Shiva's presentation, Earth Democracy, as she addresses the ongoing colonization of mind and imagination. Martin Luther King said, sometimes you gotta preach to a crowd so they remember how to sing. To the choir so they remember how to sing. You gotta preach to the choir so they remember how to sing. Right? That's important. But we're at the point where we are midway into a crash. And we need first responders now. We're beyond just talking. We need to create first responders in our movements. We started to challenge ourselves to think, how can we not only tell the stories from the communities that we represent, that we're accountable to, but also facilitate in the cross-pollination of the stories that often go missing or mangled in mainstream media, that we can say in our own firsthand truth, bear witness to that, and have that be part of what dispels the myths that are created to keep us divided. The one thing that colonization did the best was make us believe in the one story, the single story. There's this one narrative that we all gotta believe in. And so our liberation is really bound, not in the diversity even, but in the multiplicity of our stories, in the multiplicity of our stories. And the more that, they, that we create room for them, we start to see each other. You know, the only enemy that you will ever, ever, ever have is the person whose story you don't yet know. That is the only enemy you'll ever have. And so how do we start to connect each other? How do we become the oak trees, right? Hurricane Katrina, when the storm came, all foundations were uprooted except the oak tree. Because the oak tree, instead of digging its roots deep and solitary into the ground, digs wide and interlocks with surrounding oak trees. You can't bring down 10 oak trees or 100 oak trees. And so there is nature telling us how we survive this time of unnatural disaster, right? Of great catastrophe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where are oak trees at? <laughs> Let's make sure we stay connected in the underground, my people, okay? Dr. Vandana Shiva reminds us that earth democracy is the coalescence of earth and human creativity. It's Columbus's mistake that united us all. And we should use the mistakes and errors of our colonizers to unite us for this last phase of what is really being called a global emergency, a planetary emergency. And the reason your movement is so important is because it can't be rendered into an algorithm of artificial intelligence. You will always be free, like the seed will always be free. And this is Earth democracy, where human creativity and the creativity of the Earth become one unleashing of energy. There's a war on life itself. And reclaiming life is the challenge of our times. We've got to reignite the recognition that we are part of an earth family. And therefore, the true freedom we have is not the freedom 
to be enslaved through our minds, through Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. That's not a freedom. That's the ultimate slavery. So earlier it used to be terra nullius. The land is empty if it's not populated by white Christians. Then they said life is empty if it's not toxic with our genes and therefore not patentable. And now I'm saying, they're saying our minds are empty. Menta nullius. Our minds are empty if, if Facebook and Mr. Microsoft and Google hasn't occupied and colonized it. This is the freedom of our time. Our freedom to unleash all our intelligences. And our intelligences include the intelligence of cooperation, of working with other life, the intelligence of love, called emotional intelligence now. They're waking up to it suddenly, oh, there's an intelligence in loving. <laughs> We've got to reclaim our intelligence. We've got to reclaim our life. We've got to reclaim our freedom. And the reason I'm so happy to be with you is the 500 years of colonialism, the 200 years of fossil fuels, a century of poisons, putting it aside means the ultimate creative expressions that unites us in our hearts. Thank you. We want to leave you with some sentiments from Nidia and Desiree, as well as the panel with myself, Dr. Vandana Shiva and Paul Stamets, on what is required in building a deeper collective purpose, in being in right relationship with one another, and addressing urgency. So what does that really mean to walk together as one? It means that we need to listen. It means that we need to be present. And sometimes it's hard for us to be able to hear the voices of our elders, of our ancestors. It's hard for us to be able to see with non-clouded eyes because we have so much noise going on inside of our heads. This whole idea of unity and conformity is unrealistic. Unity and diversity is what we're seeking. We're seeking to be able to live together and to be able to be aware of how we are affecting one another. Something else that I've learned is that we don't just carry ancestral trauma we carry ancestral wisdom in our DNA. So even if you have been displaced from your traditional lands, you can remember those stories. You can remember those songs. They can come back to you through your dreams. And the best way that you can reconnect with your ancestors is through the earth. And so what we really need to learn how to do is to listen to the stories of this place. That's why it was so important for her to come up here and tell us the stories of the place which we're standing on right now. What is the earth saying here? The earth is saying that this man-made lake was never meant to be here. The earth is saying that the water needs to come back here. Not the way in which we are having this idea that we dominate that we dominate the earth, we dominate the water, we coexist with them, and we help to tend to them. Just reading, Mr. Amazon, Jeff Bezos is making a whole new escape module called Blue Moon to get to the moon. Mr. Elon Musk is making SpaceX to get to Mars. People like Stephen Hawking, brilliant scientist, said, at this point of extinction, there are only two options, extinction or escape. I said they forgot the real one as earthlings, as citizens of the earth, as living beings who have sustained our lives and the earth over millennia. And if we only remember how to do it, 
we can continue to do it. That's what we are being called to do. That is our democracy. So much of my research and my innovations that I have rediscovered from nature is recognizing the fact that nature through hundreds of millions of years have come up with the very solutions that we need to put into place today, but it's whether we can see them. And the organization of the mycelium and that of the computer internet and our brains and, and even dark matter, but you have uh, uh, nodes of crossing. And at nodes of crossing, you have exchanges of information. We here right now, all of you, are the seeds of knowledge to go out into your communities and spread this message. You can become nodes of crossing. You can then go out into your communities and talk about Vantana's work and my work and other people's work and support those people. You don't have a place and there's not a community meeting, create one. Get like-minded people. When we still have fossil fuels and we still have access to excavators, let's take those dams down. Let's stop old growth logging, a moratorium on old growth logging. Starting in the United States, we can do that. I think about stopping any new mining projects and dealing with the tailing ponds issues all up and down these incredible rivers of the Pacific Northwest. And what I think we need to do to achieve that is get really engaged and stop making excuses, stop staying in denial, stop thinking it's too big or too small or something's more important, but really getting involved day after day after day and pushing for these things to happen because it's possible, but we need to apply force and we need to continually apply force and we need to show them that we mean it. Not that we'll rah, 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 show them for 10 minutes and then go home, click on Netflix and drink our kombucha and think that we're done. That's not what it's gonna take. And so when I think about a vision, I think about us actually really committing and saying, if we think this is important, then we are putting our lives on the line for this because it's not gonna happen any other way. They know that we will go home and just get into the consumer model again. And if they keep feeding us, whether it's with organic coconuts or whether it's with GMO Doritos, it doesn't matter because we're still gonna stay in that mindset until we can push out of it. And so I, I want that vision for all of us where we decide that the land and the earth and our more than human kin and, of, and all of our human relatives are more important than this modern industrialized lifestyle, then honestly, it doesn't make us happy. It doesn't fulfill us. And as far as I'm concerned, every time it has looked like an impossible problem, the idea that a handful of toxic corporations would control and own the seed, collect royalties from our farmers, destroy the biodiversity, is the seed that gave me the inspiration of how to do it. And what I learned from Gandhi was you don't take on the power of the empire on the terms of the empire. Like Audrey Lowe said, you don't bring down the master's house with the master's tools. So the three that I have been guided by, the first is the idea that you can govern yourself and the earth governs herself by being an amazing self-organized Gaia. Just that switch changes the way we think of solutions to climate change. They need to think more Gaia, less amount parts per million in the atmosphere. More Gaia, less CO2 obsession. Our self-organizing, Gandhi called it Swaraj self-rule. I was in, in Hawaii to launch the GMO free movement. It's amazing. They talk self-rule and home rule. That was the language at that time, at the time of colonialism. 
we've got to start being sovereign people. The second is because it's the economy of destruction that is enslaving us, including our minds, because the new economy of the digital barons, the robber barons, is really colonize our minds. Mind our, mind our brain and then occupy our brain. Lovely book out from Howard called Surveillance Capitalism. Do read it. Surveillance Capitalism, like how our thinking and communications are the raw material for this next industrial age of capitalism. We are the next raw material. Like the seeds became the raw material of the genes. Like the soil became the raw material. Like the fossilized fuel became the raw material. But the third, which for me, so self-making becomes very, very important. No matter where the creativity of producing what you need, it could be your music, it could be your um, food. And I have very consciously decided to focus on food. You know, I used to be a quantum physicist, thought solving a few things could, you know, I needed paper, pencil, and maybe food once in five days. It's possible, you can eat very little, you can fast a lot. If I today focus on food, I realize it's at the heart of so many problems. 75% destruction water, 75% destruction of soil, 80, 90% destruction of biodiversity, 50% damage to climate, uprooting of farmers everywhere. And then we are forced to eat food that's making us sick, 75% chronic diseases. So if you start becoming more thoughtful of what you eat beyond mushrooms, <laughs> the other stuff too, we can start addressing the extinction of bees and the butterflies. And the mycorrhizae will come back as they have. Our soil has zero mycorrhizae in 94. It's full because they make themselves. And that's the point about life. It makes itself. Life is not engineered. Life makes itself and evolves. And living change makes itself. I think it's vital to not feel that our smallness is a disadvantage. That's mycorrhizal fungi doesn't see, feel that way. It turns its smallness into the advantage. We have to turn our smallness, our, our solidarities, our joining, our communication into the largeness of life's renewal. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Storrs. I'd like to thank our host, Ayana Young. Our researchers and writers for this episode were Francesca Glassbell and Hannah Wilton. Our social media coordinator is Aaron Wise, and our music coordinator is Carter Lou McElroy. The music you heard today was by the Thrive Choir. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.